welcome. I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. So hello, and welcome to a full Crime Biscuit. I'm going to apologize, there was no half biscuit on Friday. And the reason, but is because I'm having a little outpatient thumb surgery um, next week. And my thumb is really sore and taking notes and researching is difficult at the moment, which sounds screwy. But let me tell you, if you ever wanna know how much you use your thumbs, take one of them and put it in a splint or something and try not to use it for 24 hours. You will have a new appreciation for your thumbs after that. Another little funny thing, before you get surgery, at the surgery place I'm going to, they make you have a COVID test seven days before. So I get this voicemail, it's them calling to tell me that the results were negative. But what was funny was, if you have one of those voicemail systems that tries to transcribe it for you, before listening to it, I was trying to read it, and the part where they tell me they were calling for me, my phone translated as, what the Chick-fil-A? I don't know how my name sounds like, what the Chick-fil-A, but I thought that was kind of funny. But regardless, the real reason you're here, this is going to be what I'm going to call Bad Biscuit Dumpster Awards. Occasionally, I think I'm going to do one where we just talk about a few different um, curials, how about serial killers or murderers or kidnappers or what have you, and just kind of like wallow in their nastiness and at some point, some of these we will get in and do their cases in depth later. But today, we're just going to like hit on them real quick. Just kind of the worst of the worst things that these people did. And they're in no particular order. So it's not like I've ranked them. I'm just going to throw them at you and you can decide yourself. So our first Bad Biscuit Dumpster Award is going to go to Robert William Picton, who goes by Willie. Willie was born on October 26th in 1949, and he was a pig farmer. He is also a convicted serial killer. On January 22nd of 2007, the first day of the jury evidence portion of the trial, the Crown said that Willie confessed to 49 murders. Of course, he didn't know he was confessing. He was telling his little tale to a cellmate, who just so happened to be an undercover police officer. He told this cellmate that he really wanted to kill one more so he could make it an even 50. So this charming fellow also tells another friend that a good way to kill a female heroin addict is to inject her with windshield wiper fluid. He then told another one that he killed sex workers by strangling them while they were handcuffed, and he would then gut them and feed them to the pigs. So picture this. It's the early 80s, and women from Vancouver, British Columbia's downtown east side start disappearing. They're often homeless or poor. Many are addicted to drugs, and many are in the sex trade to earn money to pay for those drugs. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were serving a warrant on this farmer on February 5th of 2002 for a weapons-related issue. Not long after that, some of the Vancouver's missing women start to reappear. Sort of. Parts of them are being found. In Picton's freezer, where he kept meat he hadn't sold, they found feet, hands, and the heads of two missing women. On this farm, it is cluttered with junk, 
This is not like a picturesque farm with white picket fences and pretty red barns. This is cluttered with junk, heavy equipment, a big conveyor belt. Not necessarily a nice place to go on a field trip. So in this mess of junk, they find ID cards, clothes, and teeth. There were no completely intact bodies found at this farm. Now here's something crazy mind-blowing. Robert Picton and his brother David, they were staying on that farm with their parents, Leonard and Helen. Leonard and Helen had bought this farm for 18 grand back in 1963. The boys also had a sister named Linda, but she was raised in the city and she went to boarding schools. I think she went on to marry really well. But anyway, so these brothers are on this farm. In 78, the father dies, followed by mom in 79. So now, David and Willie have inherited this farm. And somehow, by 1994, this farm is worth $7.2 million. Purchased for 18000 now worth over $7 million. So they sell a part of it and get $1.7 million. So now they're millionaires, right? That'll be good. Things are looking up. What are you going to do? Something successful, right? Nope. It's right after this that women start to go missing. So it would seem that uh, what Becoming Rich did was buy Willie the time to get up to some bad business. So Willie liked to have parties at what they called the Piggy Palace. I read about one Halloween party that they had. So there's all these people, they're doing drugs. There's people having sex in the trailer, in the house. They're roasting a pig outside. So they got lots of cocaine for everybody and lots of pork to eat. Not my idea of a party, but, you know, you do you. But it wasn't just sex workers and hard partiers that liked to go to the Piggy Palace. Picton also ran a nonprofit that raised money for different organizations. Mayors, council members, business owners, school students would go to the Piggy Palace for these fundraisers. Here people are eating roasted pig. Pig that had probably been fed parts of murdered women. And worse, so these leftover parts that weren't used were sent to a processing place that would use the remains to create products that are used in lipstick base, soaps, shampoos, perfume, maybe gross, but what's the big deal? I'm assuming, and I'm not the only one, that there were also parts of these murdered women in those leftovers that were sent to this processing place. And people were using these products. This is one of those stories that is a massive one to tell. And I will, one of these days. But I'm going to end our look at Nasty Willie by saying this. He was convicted and sentenced to life with no chance of parole for 25 years which was the harshest sentence that he could be given under Canadian law. So you understand that means he has to serve at least 25 years without a chance of parole. But this means that he is eligible for parole in February of 2024. And he is eligible for, that's for day parole. He's eligible for full parole in 2027. Now, I don't think it's going to happen that they're going to let him out. You never know. So this next bad biscuit, um, sad to say, was born in Fort Wayne in the state, my home state of Indiana. Dean Coral, a.k.a. the Candyman. He's believed to have killed 27 young men. His youngest victim was nine years old. Dean was born in 1939 and he died in 1973 
when one of his accomplices, a young man named Elmer Wayne Henley, shot him. And why did he shoot him? Because Elmer, who brought him victims to torture and kill, got scared when Coral got mad at him for bringing a girl over. So real quick, let's have a little peek at Dean. He was brought up in a broken home. He suffered rheumatic fever as a child, which caused him to suffer from a heart condition. In 1964, he joins the Army. In 69, he moves to Houston and starts hanging out with teenage boys. This is a 30-year-old man. He finds himself a couple of young friends, Elmer Henley and David Brooks. And for fun, they would all sniff glue together. Some kind of weird bond develops in an early 1970. Jeffrey Conan is lured back to Coral's house. Drugs and alcohol are that lure. This is the first victim. The pattern would continue. They lure the victims over. The victims would be allowed to drink until they passed out. Then they would be tied up, tortured, molested, and killed, either by strangulation or shooting. This would sometimes happen over a period of a few days. They did this many, many times. So where did things go wrong for this trio? Well, Elmer made the mistake of bringing over Rhonda Williams, a 15-year-old runaway, and another friend, Timothy Curley. Rhonda is obviously a girl, so Coral is not happy about this. They have a little party sniffing varnish and everyone passes out. Apparently, Elmer thought it was going to be okay to let Rhonda stay at Coral's house since she was a runaway, but this was not okay with Coral. So while the kids are passed out from sniffing varnish, he ties Elmer, Rhonda, and Timothy up. Obviously, Elmer is a tad bit freaked out when he wakes up because he knows that being tied up in Coral's basement means you're going to get dead real soon. So now Elmer starts begging Dean not to kill him. And Elmer's solution to get out of the pickle he's in is to tell Dean Coral that he will rape Rhonda and Coral can rape Timothy. Coral unties Elmer and commands him to get busy. But Elmer can't accomplish the rape, so Dean starts taunting him. Elmer picks up a 22 and aims it at Dean and tells him to stop teasing him. But Dean doubles down and the insults get worse. What does Elmer do? Elmer shoots Dean Coral six times and kills him right quick. Then he calls the police and turns himself in. He also takes them to the dumping grounds where authorities find 27 bodies between two different sites. Now, I can't say I'm sad that Coral was shot and killed, but I really wish he would have suffered a bit more, maybe over the course of a few days while strapped to a torture board like his victims. As for Henley, well, that piece of you-know-what is still alive in prison today. He was denied parole in 2015. He's up again in 2025. Considering he was sentenced to six life sentences, I doubt he'll get out. Keep rotting away, Elmer. Keep rotting away. Next on our list is David Parker Ray, the toy box killer. He is a greasy-looking waste of humanity that is believed to have killed, after torturing, more than 50 women. If you want to see an image of something that will never, ever leave your mind, Google the toy box killer and take a look at the toy box, which is actually a soundproof trailer. The items on the wall will never leave your mind. And once you see the chair he devised, you will never be comfortable at the gynecologist's office again. And if you would rather not be haunted by sexual torture devices, then do not Google it. This lunatic would use drugs, 
usually sodium pentothal and phenobarbital, to induce a kind of amnesia that would mess with his victim's memory. He also liked to make tape recordings, and we know he did at least one video because they found it. In his recordings, he would record himself telling his victims exactly what he was going to do to them. Here's um, a couple of examples. Angelica Montano and Kelly Garrett. There is this video of Ray and his girlfriend, Cindy Hendy. Oof, I find it hard to believe he had a girlfriend, but she is no better than him. Uh, raping and torturing this woman. She's unidentified at the time. He had more than one helper, actually. His daughter, Glenda Jessie Ray, and her friend, Dennis Yancey, also liked to participate. But anyway, so there is this video. And there was some publicity about it once Ray was arrested. And another woman had come forward with a story very similar to what was on the videotape. So now let's talk about Angelica Montano, who was an acquaintance of Ray, who had gone to his house to borrow some cake mix. Instead of cake mix, she is drugged, raped, and tortured by Ray. She is left near the highway out in the desert. Police find her. She survived. But there is no follow-up because she can't really recall what happened. This was because of the drugs they'd given her. So now after the release of some of the details from that videotape, the woman in it was identified as Kelly Garrett. She was a former friend of Ray's daughter, Jessie. In July of 86, Kelly had gotten into an argument with her husband and had gone to play some pool at a local bar with Jessie Ray. Well, Jessie spiked Kelly's beer with their little date rape drug. Her and her father then put a dog collar and a leash on Kelly and took her to the toy box. Over the course of two days, he raped and tortured Kelly, continually giving her more drugs throughout those two days. At the end of it, Ray cut her throat and dumped her on the side of the road. Shockingly, Kelly survived. Even more shockingly, no one believed her. Not the police and not her husband, who thought she'd been out cheating on him and divorced her. Kelly had very little memory of what had happened over that two-day period, thanks to the drug, but she did remember being raped. In the end, Jessie Ray received a sentence of nine years, which I think is stupid wrong. She should have gotten a lot more. Cindy Hendy, Ray's girlfriend and fellow participant, was given 36 years, and again, stupid, stupid sentence. I think she deserved at least one life sentence, and Ray was sentenced to 224 years. Regretfully, he died just three years into his sentence. I personally hope that he is getting some extra special attention in hell, and I hope it involves a trailer full of sadistic torture devices. Number four on my bad biscuit dumpster list is the definition of a human dumpster fire. Susan Smith murdered her two beautiful little boys on October 24, 1994. She fastened three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alexander into their car seats and then rolled that car into a lake, letting those precious babies drown. On October 25th, Susan called police and claimed that she'd been carjacked by an African-American man who drove off in her car while her two small sons were still in it. You can see footage of her on television making these dramatic pleas for the safe return of her children. And I'm betting if that happened these days, there would have been a big old GoFundMe set up for her. But it took only nine days before she confessed to what she'd done. And why? Why would a mother kill her own children? Because this mother was having an affair with a rich man 
who didn't want a, quote, ready-made family. Her solution? Kill her children. Money and a man. That was her reason for this incomprehensible act. In all fairness, even though I don't want to be, I am going to share a little bit about Susan's life. Her biological father committed suicide when she was just six, and after that, she didn't have much of a stable home life. Her stepfather admitted to molesting her in her teens, but once she was an adult, she continued having a consensual relationship with him. At 13, she had attempted suicide for the first time. After graduating high school in 1989, she made a second attempt. Can we feel bad for her younger years? Sure. But it was not as if she just snapped and was mentally unstable and on the spur of the moment killed her children because of some deep-seated mental illness. She planned this. She had a goal. The goal was to snag this man who didn't want a woman with kids. This was cold, calculated murder. And she wasn't all that good at pretending she was a victim either, because according to law enforcement, it was only one day after the investigation before they started to suspect that she had something to do with the boy's disappearance. They also suspected she'd probably killed him. But they did have some small shred of hope that they would find those boys alive. As with most investigations into homicides or disappearances, immediate families already, you know, all automatically looked at. David and Susan both took polygraphs. The results of Susan's first polygraph was inconclusive, but they gave her quite a few more. In fact, each time that they talked to her or interviewed her, they gave her another one. And each of those times, she failed when she was asked if she knew where the boys were. Her story also fell apart because she claimed that she was carjacked at an intersection. And she said that there were no other cars around, so nobody witnessed what happened. Well, here's the problem with that little story. At that particular intersection, that red light is only triggered if there is a car at the cross street. She says there were no other cars. So if there were no other cars, the red light wouldn't have been triggered. If that light wasn't triggered, why would she have stopped? So Susan Smith apparently is not feeling a whole lot of pain in prison because while she's in there, she has sex with two guards at Camille Griffin Graham Correctional Institution. Both of those guards were punished and Susan was moved to Greenwood. Susan will later say in a letter that she wrote to a journalist whose last name is Cahill that she is not a monster. She hasn't had a chance to tell her story. She didn't really do it just to be with this man. She also says that her plan was originally to kill herself and to leave a note. Well, I say, I wish she had taken her own life instead of taking the lives of those beautiful little boys. Susan is also going to be eligible for parole in 2024, when she will have served the minimum of 30 years. I hope if she does get paroled, someone is waiting for her in a car that accidentally ends up in a lake. Another Bad Biscuit Dumpster Award goes to number five, Joaquin Shadow Rams. Cool name, not a cool person. Rams killed his 15-month-old son, Prince, in 2012. I saw a video of this little boy, actually a couple. He had the most amazing, big, beautiful eyes and curly, soft hair. He's like this little angel with a smile that would melt anyone's heart. So why did his father kill him? To collect insurance money. It took five years to convict this you-know-what. I really want to cuss, but I'm going to try not to. For those years, Rams claimed that his son died after a fever-induced seizure, which Prince did actually suffer from. 
Judge Randy Bellows, though, who was presiding over this, he wasn't having any of that. In a ruling that was 62 pages long and took two hours to read, the judge completely dismissed any suggestion that Little Prince died a natural death. The conclusion of his ruling was that Rams pretty much planned to take his son's life once he'd taken out various insurance policies that totaled over half a million when the child was just two months old. Prince's mother, Hera McLeod, objected to the unsupervised visits that a civil judge had given Joaquin. Her reason? She feared for her son's safety. Talk about a mother's intuition. When September of 2012 rolled around, Ram found out that his son had suffered from a fever-induced seizure. So I'm guessing that that is what gave Ram his perfect solution to how he could kill his son and get away with it. And I realized a second ago I just called him Ram instead of Rams, but he's a piece of mm, and I don't care. So anyways, on October 20th of 2012, on his fourth unsupervised visit with Prince, Rams called 911 and said his son wasn't breathing and had suffered a seizure. Attempts were made to revive the baby, but those failed. Prince's death is just one in a line of misfortune seems to happen to people in Ram's orbit. Former girlfriend, Sean Mason, had been shot and killed in 2003. Ram's mom, Alma Collins, had died in what was initially considered a suicide. What do these two deaths, not including Prince, have in common? In Sean Mason's death, he had attempted, but failed, to collect on a life insurance policy. In his mother's death, he did collect over $150,000. Rams is also a suspect in both of those cases. Prince's mother, Hera, is glad he's been convicted. But according to a piece on CBS News, she said, quote, it's sad my son had to be the one to put him away. She also says that she thinks Rams should have been put away from his ex-girlfriend's death and the civil judge should never have allowed unsupervised visits with Prince, especially after she'd given them evidence that Rams was a danger to their son and that he was a suspect in Sean Mason's death. An autopsy on Prince concluded he had drowned. A year later, however, the chief medical examiner, William Gormley, overturned those findings and changed the cause of death to undetermined. Medical experts for the prosecution said that the fever-induced seizures are common in babies Prince's age and not fatal. The reason a judge was ruling on this case instead of a jury was because the defense waived their right to jury trial if the prosecution would not go for the death penalty. Instead, they gave him life in prison. Joseph Velez, a son of Alma Collins and half-brother to Joaquin, is glad that there was a conviction for Little Prince's death. But he also wants some justice for his mother because he does not believe that she killed herself. And sadly, he has not been able to reclaim his mother's ashes because they were in Joaquin's possession when he was arrested. I will never, ever understand how money is so important that you would kill someone for it, let alone your own baby. Let's talk about Sandy Dawn Nieves. This waste of human flesh and oxygen killed four of her children on June 30th, 1998. Reason? To get even with the men in her life. Sounds legit. Sandy was married to Fernando Nieves, with whom she had three children, David, Nicolette, and Rochelle. 
After three years, they got divorced. She went on to remarry and have two daughters with her second husband. Those children were Jacqueline and Christy. So this woman, and I use the term lightly, encouraged her four daughters, ages 5, 7, 11, and 12, to have a little slumber party in the kitchen in their Santa Clarita home. Now, this is something the girls had never been encouraged to do before, so they were excited. So they have their little sleeping bags, they watch the movies, they're now in the kitchen. Sandy proceeds to asphyxiate them with gas from the oven. After that, she uses gasoline to ignite a fire inside of the house. Firefighters find the four girls in their sleeping bags on the kitchen floor. Nieves and her son David, age 14, were treated for smoke inhalation at the hospital. The police took her to jail as soon as the hospital said she was good to go. Now, these killings had happened on a day that her ex-husband, David Folan, and her were supposed to appear in court ahead of a Monday custody hearing. Here's a little side note for you. David was previously married to Sandy's mother. So that would mean that he was originally the grandfather to three of the children she already had when they got married. So her mother disowned her, not shocking. After Sandy and Folden were married, Folden adopted the three children from her previous marriage, including David, the 14-year-old, who had survived the fire. In the home, Sandy was this super controlling person, and she was really big on discipline. She was also apparently very used to getting her way. Well, this kind of behavior caused some issues between her and David. And while they were married for eight years, it eventually became too much. They got divorced, and now back to where we were. Folden, at this point, during this, from what I read, fairly ugly kind of divorce, is wanting more access to his children. But Sandy claims that the kids won't be safe because Folden has a violent son from a previous marriage. Folden filed for custody of the two younger girls who were his biological daughters. Some of her former acquaintances and neighbors almost kind of defend her like she was a good person and they can't imagine that she would do what she was accused of doing. They attributed the event to her being stressed out over the custody issue and that she might have just snapped. Well, I'm sorry, but if you love your children so much that you're emotionally distraught over the possibility of losing custody of them, why would you take that love and pervert it into, well, I'll just kill them then? That isn't love. And the way she talked the girls into having a slumber party in the kitchen and then asphyxiating them with natural gas, that's not suddenly snapping. That is planned. I cannot find any part of me that can sympathize with Sandy in the least. There is also speculation that she meant to kill herself after she killed the girls. And there is some question as to whether or not 14-year-old David had any part to play. Regardless, Penny Lucia, Sandy's stepmother, said that Folden had served her with papers seeking to annul his adoption of her three children that were not his biological children. Supposedly, this was to decrease the amount of child support he was going to have to pay. It seems almost like the stepmother is trying to offer this up as some kind of reason for what Sandy did. It doesn't appear, however, that there were any papers of the kind. She was sentenced to death on October 6th of 2000, she is still on death row. Last up on today's Bad Biscuit Dumpster Awards is the Plainfield Ghoul, Mr. Edward Theodore Gein. Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik, 
who killed their friend, Cassie Jo Stoddard, in what was supposedly um, a killing inspired by the movie Scream. These two idiots made all these recordings, said all this stupid stuff, trying to talk a big talk, blah, blah, blah. While this little section is not about them, I want to mention this. At one point, these not-so-brilliant boys were talking about who they were going to be like, and they bring up Ed, and one of them says, Gein. Ed Gein was a necrophile. has nothing to do with stabbing, any of that. Um, they probably met Ed Kemper, hat tip to uh, Morbid, a true pine, uh, excuse me, girls, Morbid, a true crime podcast, which I love, which you would love, by the way, rated R uh, alert, though. They do not censor their language. But regardless, they mentioned this. And I just thought that was hilarious. That these two boys are pretending to be, you know, they're going to be a big deal, big serial killers. And they pick Ed Gein, who you're going to find out is not Ed Kemper. Back on topic. Ed Gein suffered from necrophilia. And how did he indulge this illness? He indulged it by digging up corpses from local graveyards and making himself little keepsakes from the bones and the skin. Gein was born in Wisconsin on August 27, 1906, to George and Augusta Gein. He had an older brother named Henry. It was pretty obvious that Augusta did not like her husband George, and I mean at all. But she stayed in that marriage because her religious beliefs meant that divorce was not a possibility. Augusta ran a small grocery store, and then she went on to purchase a farm outside of Plainfield, Wisconsin. Part of her reason for buying this farm was to keep the outside world from having an undue influence on her sons. So reportedly, the boys only left to go to school, and that was it. The rest of the time, they were doing chores. Augusta was very fond of preaching to her boys about the immortality, immortality, immorality of the world and the evils of alcohol. She even went so far as to say that all women, except for her, of course, were prostitutes and instruments of the devil. So Gein, not surprisingly, struggles socially at school, and he has some rather off-putting mannerisms, one of which is to just randomly giggle. So he is bullied at school, and if he did manage to make a friend, his mother was not at all happy about it. Despite this, despite this odd social behavior, despite the fact that his mother won't let him have friends, he actually does pretty well in school. In fact, I read that he excelled in reading. Now, at home, Augusta, she was pretty abusive to them. And because they have this type of home life, all those boys really had was each other. George Gein died in 1940, and so the boys had to go to work to earn money. Both were known in the community as honest, reliable workers. And Ed apparently did a lot of babysitting. It seems that he related to children better than he did to adults. So while his brother Henry is starting to kind of reject their mom's view of the world, Ed remains very loyal to Augusta. In May of 1944, there's this little brush fire near the farm. The Gein boys go out there to put out the fire. At one point, it seems like they get separated from each other and Ed can't see Henry anymore. After the fire is put out, Ed tells police that his brother is missing. A search party gets organized, they come out, and then Ed leads them right to Henry, who is dead on the ground. There is no sign of fire anywhere near Henry's body, and there are bruises on the older brother's head. For some reason, the police dismiss foul play 
and the county coroner lists Henry's cause of death as asphyxiation. So now it's just Ed and Augusta. Augusta has a series of strokes, and eventually she dies on December 29th of 1945. Ed boards up all the rooms in the house that his mother used, and he basically confines himself to a small room off the kitchen. In November of 1957, Bernice Warden disappears. The last person to be in the store that evening, according to Warden's son, was Ed Gein. Police search Gein's property and find Warden's decapitated body in a shed. It is hanging upside down by ropes at her wrist and a crossbar between her ankles. The torso had been butchered like one might a deer. She had been shot and then mutilated after death. Now here are some things that the police found when they searched the house. Four noses, human bones and human bone fragments, nine masks made out of human skin, bowls made from human skulls, ten female heads with the top sawed off, chair seats that were covered in human skin, Mary Hogan, a local tavern owner's head, was in a paper bag, Bernice Warden's head was in a burlap sack. There were skulls on the bedposts, nine vulvas in a shoebox, organs in the fridge, a drawstring on a lamp made out of a set of human lips. There was a belt constructed of female nipples and a lampshade that was made from the skin of a human face. The only two people that Gein confessed to killing were Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. The rest of his trophies were from a self-confessed 40 nighttime visits to the graveyard, though he did tell authorities that not every trip to the graveyard uh, was successful. He said he would stumble in there in a daze and then sometimes come out empty-handed. He did prefer to dig up women who reminded him of his mother, so this would be middle-aged women, and then he would take the bodies home. Once he had them there, he would tan the skin so he could make his decorations. He admitted to nine grave robberies. He even took investigators to the locations. They are a little bit doubtful that a single person could dig up one grave in a single evening. If you just have a shovel, that would be a little, take a little bit of doing. But when they did exhumations on two of the graves that Ed Gein claimed he robbed, they found them both empty. So that would seem to corroborate Gein's confession. Ed said that after his mother's death, he wanted to have a sex change. So he made a, quote, woman suit. Does this sound familiar? Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill? Or maybe Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Leatherface with his different masks made out of other people's faces? Inspiration? Obviously. So Ed would don the tan skins and he would pretend to be a woman. He denies that he had sex with any of the bodies and he said they smelled too bad. So on November 21st, 1957, Gein was arraigned on one count of first-degree murder. He entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. He was found that he, mentally incompetent and he was unfit to stand trial. So he was then sent to um, Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. Later, he was transferred to Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. Finally, in 1968, he was found sane enough to stand trial. He was found guilty on first-degree murder. But since he was still considered legally insane, he was handed over to a mental hospital for life. 
On July 26, 1984, he died due to respiratory and heart failure as a result of cancer. So now I'm going to admit that I struggle a little bit with Ed's case. Ed was certainly suffering from a mental illness. And if he hadn't killed two women and potentially his brother, I couldn't really hate him. I'd have to feel bad for him and wish that there would have been some kind of mental health assistance for him way back then. But the truth is, he did kill two people, maybe three. And there ends my sympathy for Ed. So that about wraps up the first episode ever of Bad Biscuit Dumpster Awards. Some of these cases, like I said, we will talk about in depth down the road. But for now, just let those little tidbits of dumpster fodder sit in your brain and fester. Hang tight for the final crumb. Send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Check me out on Facebook at Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast. And finally, rate and review or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's your final crumb. Don't eat Piggy Palace barbecue. Avoid people who have torture trailers in their backyard. And please, don't rob graves and wear other people's faces. Thanks for joining me. Bye.